Hello and welcome to my podcast, How I Teach Golf. My name's Duncan Walger and I hope you enjoy the show. Good to have you on the podcast, Philip. Um, let's, uh, let's go all the way back to how you got into the game. So tell the listeners how Philip Talbot uh, got into the game of golf and how he ended up where he is today. Well, good morning, Duncan. Um, it goes back a little way. I was born into a golfing family. Um, I was born in 64, so that would be at the height of the, the big three in the game of golf then, Nicholas Palmer player era. Um, and um, my father was uh, quite a well-known professional at the time. He was making his way in the industry. He was head professional, David Talbot. He was head professional at uh, a wonderful golf course just off the M1 in the Midlands called Knott's Golf Club or Hollinwell to other people. Yes. And he was there from um, 1959 to 69. It was his first head professional position. Um, but I don't really recall playing, um, you know, up there at that stage. I, I was really too young. He left the, the club uh, in 1969 uh, to move down south to Royal Mid-Surrey Golf Club, where he remained for 30 years. And that was really where I cut my teeth in the, um, in, in, in the amateur game first, obviously, growing up uh, in the junior section there, and then finally progressing uh, to become a professional, you know, many years later. But um, fond, fond memories uh, of what I recall up at Hollingwell. Uh, my father certainly enjoyed playing, playing there. He was at the, the sort of height of his playing career during the uh, 60s and, and early 70s. Um, and uh, I, can, I can, you know, have some recollection of, of uh, the course and um, the times we spent up there. But really, it was at Mid-Surrey that I started to play, probably around about the age of eight or nine. But to be fair, Duncan, I loved other sports as well. You know, golf was just one sport that I tried, you know, at weekends mainly and participated in all other sports at school and thoroughly enjoyed doing that all the way through, uh, you know, school and college years, etc. And golf only became a little bit more a number one sport when I was, I guess, about sort of 17, 18 years old. So you would have said, so you would have been down in, uh, you would have been at Mid-Surrey, Royal Mid-Surrey from probably the age of about six, seven? Yeah, I think, um, I think uh, I joined as a, as a junior member there when I was nine years old. So okay. uh, the family moved down when I was only five. Um, and then I joined, uh, you know, a thriving junior section at the age of nine. And I look back on those times with very fond memories and, very, very um, fortunate memories, really. You know, there, there was a lot of um, attention given to the juniors at the club. Um, there was a marvellous lady called uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Scott, who uh, was very keen on um, looking after the juniors, helping to create, you know, competitions and tournaments throughout the school holidays. Um, there were, yeah, I guess about 70 or 80 of us at, at that time, all age groups ranging from 9 to 18. And it was... Uh, a wonderful time to to be part of that section and I understand it's still thriving today and um, that's great to to hear. So then if so if you didn't play that much from when you were about nine up to about 17, 18 what was the what was kind of the catalyst what what was what was the real fire that said to you right I'm not going to play these other sports so much now and I'm really going to focus on my golf? Yeah, I think I think it was the I, th I would say although I enjoyed team sports um, you know I was a decent Decent footballer, um, cricket, um, tennis, etc., athletics, everything that I could play, I, I did play. 
and participate in. And I think, you know, I learned a lot through participation in team sports. You know, you learn to pull for other people. Uh, the camaraderie, the, uh, the sense of belonging to a team was, was uh, tremendously important and served me well in later life. But at the same time, um, I enjoyed probably more the, the individual satisfaction of um, the challenge of, of, uh, of golf. I mean, it's a sport, as you know, anybody who plays golf, you can't beat it. Uh, it's a constant challenge on a daily basis. And, and that challenge is generally with yourself. You know, golf always wins. But it was that probably individual as aspect of the, the sport that I couldn't find in other sports that really drove me forward to play, you know, that much more. So did you do your, did you turn pro at Royal Mid-Surrey and do your, your PGA and everything there? I did actually, yeah. I turned pro in uh, October 84 and went through the normal um, PGA qualification as it was. And I think it was a three, three year course covering all aspects of the profession from, you know, the club repairing side in those days to uh, swing instruction, uh, running a business, the merchandising side of, of uh, running a golf shop and the rules of golf and um, had a good grounding in, in that department and then uh, qualified in 87 and did my apprenticeship at Mid-Surrey, as you say. And, um, you, you know, again, working alongside many uh, other assistant professionals that were employed there at the time, who uh, many of them, in fact, went on to successful careers themselves, either as um, head professionals in later life or um, trying to cut it on the European tour and, and tour golf. So, again, that was a good grounding at that stage. So would you have said you transitioned from being as a, kind of get a junior golfer, turning professional, doing your apprenticeship? Because um, you then went out on tour yourself for, was it three or four years, something like that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Duncan. Looking back on it, I was not a particularly outstanding junior golfer. I was, uh, I remember one year at Mid-Surrey, I was last man in the eight-man team, I think, uh, just getting into the team when I was 16, I think, off four handicaps. So there were many other juniors that were better than I was. Um, you know, there were a lot more with lower handicaps. Robert Lee was one that stood out at the time who went on to win um, several times on the European Tour, as you know, and now is very much uh, a major part of the Sky uh, commentary team on television. And he was very fun to be around. He was a couple of years older than me, but Robert sort of acted as a little bit of a Pied Piper to the rest of the junior section. You know, we yeah. all aspire to be as, as good as Rob or try and compete with him, and that wasn't a bad thing at all. And I think in one year, actually, I think three of us turned pro out of that junior section. So although I was one of I was just one of many and um, I actually turned pro when I was only two handicap you know I wasn't an outstanding plus amateur uh, handicap player at all but my uh, game improved as I got older really. Okay so would you one of the questions I wanted to ask you uh, Philip because I'll get into I'll get on to mentors and bits and yeah. pieces in, in, a, in a little while I when I, I came into golf quite late. I was a swimmer before I was a before I was a golfer, um, and obviously I can see the 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 the, the swimming times and running times and everything else have, have reduced over the last thirty years. So yes, you yeah. know, Adam Peaty, for example, is swimming a hundred meters breaststroke in fifty seven seconds. Uh, and when I was growing up, people like Adrian Morehouse were winning Olympic golds in one minute, one second. So there's like a four second reduction in the in the time with golf handicaps. I remember growing up and people um, that were, you know, just the best players. When when I used to look at uh, open events, 
the lead amateur would be I mean to see a plus handicap on a on an entry sheet was yeah, that's rare, was, wasn't it? was was rare but now it seems to be you have to be off plus 2 or plus 3 even to get into some of these uh, events would you what would you what that's do really you think has changed so much yeah you're you're absolutely right i think um uh, I agree with you. I, I think um, looking back on the, the, you know, the top amateur events that I tried to participate in at the time, whether it be the English Amateur Championship, um, the, you know, the British Amateur, the Brabazon, the Berkshire Trophy, whatever it may have been, um, there were probably half a dozen standout amateurs that were well known throughout the whole of the UK, really, mm. uh, uh, able to uh, hold down um, a genuine plus handicap at the time. Um, I mean, we were getting into events like the English and the, the British off, you know, two handicap. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I am quite surprised that the, you know, the handicapping system now, whether or not that's influential into, the, you know, seeing so many plus handicaps. I'm not convinced myself necessarily that the, the plus handicap now is necessarily better than the plus handicap then. Yeah. When you take into account... Most of the amateur golfers at that time when I was playing, and you would remember, were probably people who held down a, you know, a full-time position and were genuine amateur golfers Yes. Um, as well. Now, you know, the, with, with the money coming into the pro game, I think you get your professionals coming through the top-flight amateur game, not through um, amateur golfers, as it were, who are um, thinking of turning professional after being involved in a, in a, in a genuine profession beforehand. And uh, they're really semi-professional golfers now, I think. Um, you know, playing full-time, uh, probably playing much more than most professional golfers at golf clubs do on better quality courses with a, with a, with a tougher level of competition, really. But um, a lot of them need to be subsidized, subsidized to do that, of course. It's an expensive operation to do that, to play full-time amateur golf. We were generally playing 36 holes at the weekend um, and trying to do our best. Um, uh, and then move on from there. So um, it, it's an interesting one. There's probably a number of different factors involved now as you know, a, a generation has moved, moved on. Um, the, the SSS standard scratch score, um, I, I think now is, is averaged out probably um, in different ways than it was then. Yeah. Um, and I, I wouldn't like to say that there are false handicaps, but uh, it has surprised me at the sheer number of sort of plus threes, plus fours, plus twos. And, um, you know, I would like to see those players in action a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So you did, um, so you, when did you play, when did you play on the European tour? Because you played both Challenge Tour and European Tour, didn't you? For, for that's a right, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, like most, um, made the progression, not through the Challenge Tour itself. I wasn't quite good enough to get my card through a challenge tour ranking. I think it was back in my day, it was top 10. Um, I think it may be top 15 or 20 now. I've lost touch a little bit, but um, I, I um, played a, a number of, a couple of years on the challenge tour, finished about 23rd in the order of merit, I seem to remember. Um, but my highlight on the challenge tour, which was an important one, was actually winning um, a tournament that uh, is no longer um, played. It was called the uh, UAP Open sponsored by UAP in Paris in 1994. And that was the um, former European Under-25 Championship. But that particular year was changed where uh, it was opened up to the top 40 money winners off the Challenge Tour that year. 
um, regardless of age. Um, and I was thrilled to win that because it was quite a, a big one um, at the time financially. Um, but it also uh, was against a strong field. I think I won by a stroke from um, Neil Briggs, Robert Carlson and Ignacio Garrido at the time. I think Paul Laurie um, was, was the shot or two behind as well. So you could see the, you, you know, the players that the, the level of players in that field was pretty strong. So that gave me the confidence. It was the week before, funnily enough, the European Tour School played down at Montpellier. Yeah. Um, so I drove straight from um, Paris down to Montpellier, obviously confident from the previous week, having had a win, um, and my only win, actually, as it, as it turned out, um, and played well that week and finished 14th at the Tour School. So that enabled me to, you know, get a, a European Tour card, to play in a uh, number of events the following year on the main tour. And then when you, you transitioned, didn't you? Because you were you were playing on the European tour and then you transitioned, you became uh, you became gamekeeper, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm gamekeeper, always a risky thing to do. Uh, absolutely, Duncan, that's right. Um, after a couple of years of, you know, trying to play and having um, some good tournaments, obviously, but, but some poor ones, um, I, I probably felt when I was about 30, 31, that uh, I wasn't quite going to reach the level I wanted to long term to make a sustained um, and successful campaign by playing tour golf alone. Um, so uh, a position came up which was uh, uh, vacant on the European tour administrative side. Um, John Paramore, now the world chief referee, he was uh, uh, interviewing me at the time for a uh, rules administrator, as it was called then. Um, which um, uh, one of the things I had to do was um, try and pass the RNA rules exam uh, first and foremost, um, which is uh, held annually at uh, the home of Golf in St Andrews. And you have to attain a certain level of, of uh, a percentage pass mark to get through that. And then was trained up, you know, at tournaments um, uh, on the European Tour, Challenge Tour, Seniors Tour, whatever tour I was required to go and help at. Um, to to help run the tournaments from the administration side, which was very interesting to see because, of course, it's, when you're a player, you, you just expect that to to happen. You don't really take too much notice of what's going on um, and you're focusing on the playing side and trying to do the best score you can each week. Um, but to get to know the staff at the tour who work very hard um, and, um, you know, to see actually what's what goes in from a promotional side the television side, the rules side, etc., to make a tournament successful was was quite an eye opener. And I was there for about two and a half years, actually, which was a thoroughly enjoyable time. And uh, you know, I keep in touch with uh, some of the guys and girls there who are still there, and um, it was uh, fond memories. So, what did you do after after did you, did you stop becoming a referee? What was the? That's right. After after finishing with the tour, I, I went. Um, uh, back to Royal Midsari, actually, uh, to take over as head professional there. My father retired in 99. I thought carefully about going for that job because it's not necessarily the best thing to try and follow uh, someone um, who's a family member, uh, you know, in the same position necessarily, mm -hmm. who had been there so long. But, um, you know, I was quite a different personality to, to my father, so I, I felt I could do the job in, in a slightly different way and saw, saw it slightly differently. And I was thrilled to uh, to to get the position uh, back at the end of '99, I think it was, um, and was there for six years. But it actually wasn't a, a great time for the club. Sadly, um, uh, there was a major fire in uh, March 2001 that 
totally and utterly destroyed the, the clubhouse. Uh, there was nothing left at all. The golf course, of course, was, was untouched. And in fact, the morning, you know, after the fire, um, um, people, had you know, were turning up, obviously wanting to play on the course. They weren't yeah. aware what was done on the previous evening. So life continued immediately, you know, the following morning. But um, it was a difficult time for the club, its officers, the members, uh, the staff, etc., because uh, uh, it took about two and a half to almost three years to, to rebuild totally. So I was in temporary accommodation, um, you know, from a business point of view for about two and a half years. Um, but, it, you know, it taught me a lot in terms of, uh, again, working in a team environment, everybody pulling together um, and trying to see, you know, that period through. And I'm, uh, again, thrilled to see the club, I think, as I understand it is thriving. And uh, basically, it's a new golf club now. And uh, that's nice to see. And um, the professional who's there now with his staff uh, is doing a great job and um, thoroughly enjoying their time there. But I left in 2005, uh, back end of 2005, take up a new position abroad in Madeira. Yes. I just wanted to quickly touch on um, kind of your experience of coming through what happened at uh, Royal Midsari with the fire. Is there any, I suppose it's less, it might be less relevant now, but would you, is there any, any advice you can kind of give to any young coaches or, 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 or people out there that would be listening to the podcast and going, what what did you have to do that you felt that was so different from a, a norm what I would call a normal day to day running of a, of a of a of a pro shop and being part of a team as you would be anyway at a club, but when something like that happens, what um what did you have to change anything about? Well, what did you have to change about what you what your well, first, role was at the club? Yeah, that's that's a good question, um, Duncan. First and foremost. Um, uh, you know, there were basically no visitors um, okay. in terms of casual green fees coming to the golf club. Uh, that was put on a hold for, for several years, really. There were just no facilities. Um, you know, members, guests uh, could still play, but there were basically uh, no facilities to, to look after uh, the visiting golfer um, in, a, in a particularly great way. So the priori priority really was to, to look after the membership, um, you know, and to... to Look after my staff as well, who were very loyal during that period of time. Um, I must say, uh, without them, life would have been difficult. And obviously, without the support of my family members as well, mm. who were endlessly supportive of, of getting through the initial sort of first three months, six months, and a year. Um, you know, you had to look after your business very carefully. You had you were working with loss adjusters. You were working with insurance companies. Um, I was quite fortunate. I made sure that you know everything was backed up. Um, on computer, I would certainly recommend that, which most people probably do now in terms of uh, proving the stock value, for example, if you own your own pro shop um, to, to insurance companies and, and loss adjusters, etc., uh, because that takes some time to go through, um, remembering that there were no records left at all no. uh, physically to actually see. Um, I remember quite a surreal moment, actually. It was 8 o'clock the following morning um, uh, when I went back to... Uh, to have a look at the damage, having been up most of the night, as you can imagine, because the fire actually started at quarter to 10 at night the previous evening. It only took 45 minutes to wreak havoc um, through starting to actual total um, uh, devastation of everything. Mm. And uh, there was not one item of stock that I could actually recognize in the pro shop. So that gives you the, an idea of the intensity of the heat of that fire. 
Um, and I remember um, the pro shop in those days, it's different now, but the pro shop in those days was on a single story. And then I had an office, a spiral staircase, if you can imagine going up into um, an office upstairs and then a stock room just off to the right of that, which was positioned above the pro shop itself. And all I could remember when I arrived there the next morning was this fireman um, going up the spiral staircase, which was sort of partly intact, and standing precariously um, on, on top of the what would have been the, um, the office floor. Um, and there was a filing cabinet, actually, that he was trying to break into. And I thought, oh, that's good. There might be something in there if it's fireproof. And I, I shouted up to him, could you just have a look, see if there's anything in there? Remembering this is quite some hours after the fire and he had all his fire gloves on and everything and he touched that handle and it was still searingly hot. But he managed to open it, broke it open, I think, with a crowbar and there's absolutely nothing left. There are just ashes in there. So uh, that, was, that was quite surreal to see him. But all, all I can remember now is that spiral staircase going up into the sky. <laughs> so there wasn't a great deal of hope for anything else. No, I mean, and I can I can remember the old pro shop as well because I yeah. it, it wasn't until a long many years later when I saw your father at um, at at, uh, at an event at the Buckinghamshire with with you yeah. know, for, for John, and I, I I went up to your I went up to your father and I actually said to him I said I said I used to be scared of you, and he said <laughs> why and he said why and I said. I can remember coming into the shop at Royal Mid Surrey, and then there was just this huge man coming down these stairs <laughs> and saying to me, you know, kind of, what do you want? And I was like, oh, just a Mars bar, please, Mr. Talbot. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was a wonderful shop. It was very imposing. It was, it was all, I can, I, I can remember the shop vividly. It was, um, it was a, it was a great old clubhouse, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a disaster, and it was, it was very fortunate that no, no, no one got hurt. Is that correct? Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, that was the priority. I mean, there were staff there. There was, um, as there is now in the new um, uh, building, there is um, uh, apartments built for some of the staff there. Uh, you know, the bar staff and the catering staff, etc. And um, when I talked to some of the firemen the following day, they, they were saying it's not the flames with a fire like that that kills you. It's, it's, the, um, it's the inhalation of the smoke, which can happen very rapidly. And there were two people from New Zealand who had only just taken over to be um, helping in the bars. And they had the use of an apartment upstairs. And they were watching TV, actually. They were telling me it about the time the fire started. And they, uh, the young lady at the time, she just looked out of the window because she thought it was raining hard, and, but it was dry. It was, a, it was a cold March, northeasterly wind blowing. There was no rain whatsoever. And it was that wind actually that was fanning the flames and making it you know, turn into the disaster that it was because it was fanning the flames very quickly, a little bit like you see with these terrible wildfires going on at the moment around the world. And um, um, she looked, uh, she opened her, the door of the apartment and all she could see was black smoke coming up the stairs and the, the fire brigade reckoned they had two and a half minutes wow. to get out. So they managed to run uh, and lost everything, sadly. You know, literally the clothes they were standing up in um, uh, was all they had. So um, again, that was where, you know, people who were aware of what was going on rallied round. You know, they were put up, I think, by... Um, some of the members that evening and um, you know it's, it's amazing in instances like that, that of course where you know people just immediately 
put differences aside if they may have any and club together and get on with it, yeah. you know, and try and help each out, which was great. You know, that was great to see. And that's the purity and, of a, uh, that's the purity of a great golf club, isn't it? It is, it is. You know, when when you think uh when was the club built? 1892. So it had its centenary in 1992, um, which were major celebrations, of course. In fact, the British Boys Championship was played that year. And, uh, and um, uh, you know, so it, it had gone through a lot and, um, you know, survived two, two world wars and uh, all the memorabilia, memorabilia was lost. Um, one thing, actually, that Robert Lee, going back to Robert, helped us a great deal with was it was just before the Masters, of course, and Rob was um, involved with the commentary, I think, that time, uh, back in uh, 201. And I managed to get a message to him and say, Rob, if you could get a message to, uh, you know, some of the commentators, um, certainly to Peter Alice at the time. I don't know if Sky were covering it then. And just to put a message out, if we could, that if anybody, you know, knows Royal Midsorry in, in any way or has any attachment to it or has any memorabilia, that could be useful, you know, let us know. And I, mean, I, I remember watching on TV and he did put that message out kindly um, because Peter was aware he had been there many times and enjoyed, you know, walking down the long corridors there with all the wonderful photographs of times gone by and the, the good and the great who had played there and, and um, you know, worked there over the years. So he was very helpful. In fact, much of the memorabilia that the club now have was, was through that initial message put out around the world and it, it shows the value of you know contacts within the industry at the time you just don't know where they may may come in use and uh, we're, we're always grateful for that yeah. we're very lucky to work in an industry that is although it's a global game it's still a very small industry where people someone will always know someone and like you yeah, said absolutely. The, the great and the good will pull together and, uh, and 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 make things better in in the in the way that we can Absolutely right. And we've always got to remember that. And as you quite rightly point out, we're, we're, we're fortunate to work in a, a sporting industry, particularly where, where that's very much the case. It's, it's the people, really, isn't it, that makes the job wonderful, you know, from whether or not it's, a, you know, serving someone in a pro shop uh, or, or, you know, now on a, on a coaching basis. You know, it's, uh, it, we're very fortunate to come into contact with the people we do from all walks of life. So what, what made you do, make the change from sunny Surrey? Out to the yeah, out, yeah. Out to the island of eternal springtime. Well, in, indeed, five hundred miles or five hundred kilometers in the middle of the Atlantic, surrounded by nothing but deep ocean. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what 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 made you? Okay, so um, I'd always wanted the opportunity to work abroad if the, the right position uh, arose, and it did in um, around about October two thousand. To work abroad on the island of Madeira as uh, a director of golf there at Palero Golf. And um, that was great fun, you know, working within a, a different culture, a different team, um, you know, hoteliers, um, green staff, and um, had a thoroughly good time out there, which uh, I look back on with fond memories. And that was a slightly different job uh, to what I'd been used to. So again, adding experience all the time. So, I mean, now that you've been an assistant, you've been um, a player, uh, referee, uh, club professional, now you're a director of golf. And like you said, that had many aspects, multiple different facets to the job. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be at Santa de Sera, which was 
the other golf club on the island. I still find it very strange, Philip, that um, two people from a, a small village in, uh, in Hampton, uh, I went to school with your brother or went to the same school as your brother. You went to the same school as my brother. I still find it incredibly strange that we ended up on the island of Madeira at, uh, you know, kind of being in charge of the two golf courses. Yeah, I mean, what a coincidence that is. It's amazing, really, isn't it? Out of all the places we could have ended up, uh, we ended up there. Worst places to be, though, as, oh, as yes. you know, although I have to say, um, standing on the uh, first tier at Santo de Serra on a windy January um, morning <laughs> was, was, was quite, quite, quite tough on the golf swing, I have to say. Bracing, <laughs> we call it, didn't it? Bracing. Bracing it was, bracing it was. But what about those views out to the desertus islands? And I have to say, you know, to any listeners out there, you know, uh, if you're looking for somewhere different, go, go out there and um, go and play those two courses and maybe go to the island next door at Porto, San, uh, Porto Santo as well. There's a fantastic course there, which has also hosted the Madeira Island Open. Mm. Um, and um, at the club you were at, Duncan, you know, Santa de Serra, I mean, that par three, what was it? Was it the fourth? Fourth. Um, that's got to be one of the great, great par threes in the world, has visually. I mean, it's just, I mean, it was 400 metres from the first tee to that fourth green. Um, and you, like you said, you looked out across the Atlantic into the Desertus. Uh, and I think it was about 180 yard, 190 yard par three with no room left, no room long, no room short. <laughs> Um, there was a tiny little bailout on the right-hand side, but there wasn't That's much right. of one. There wasn't, there wasn't much of one, and, and generally it was blowing 25 miles an hour plus. But I, I have to tell you a funny story there. As, as you know, I was lucky enough to, uh, to play in a couple of Madeira Island Opens yeah. um, when I was out there, primarily to help promote the course I was at. I mean, I was non-competitive, as you know, at the time. It was 10 years since I'd played in, a, in an event of that standard. But um, I remember drawing with Gary Orr. Now, Gary's um, someone you will know well and, and listeners will know well, a very fine player indeed during um, his playing career and does well now on the seniors tour, I noticed. But I remember playing with Gary. He had started, you know, a little bit indifferently. We got round to that hole and it, I was first up, which was always a bit worrying on that tee because you really were guessing what club it sh you, know, sh you should hit. But I managed to get some sort of iron down in play. And I remember Gary hitting this absolutely imperious six iron all over the flag. But the trouble was, it was all over everything. And he turned to me and said, <laughs> you know, the, the light wasn't great. You know, it was one of those early mornings. The sun was beaming down on the ocean. So you were glistening into the, into the sunlight, not really having much of a clue where it was. And... I just saw this majestic shot fly over the green, which I think probably landed in the town. Um, of some, Mexico. Yeah, it, I think it landed in Mexico, but I didn't really have the heart to tell me. Where's that? He said, where's that gone? Then? And I said, it might just be a touch long, but if you're lucky. Are you still there? Yes, I am. I wait, am. So wait. you said you might yeah. be lucky in what, Philip? You might be yeah. lucky in what? You might be lucky. There's a bunker over the back. But knowing full well that it wasn't in the bunker, it was... And um, all credit to him, he took, he took six there. Um, this is on to finish nine. Very, very commendable effort, I thought. Very good. Very good. I mean, I can remember, again, I was very fortunate. I, you know, I didn't play in it because I was... I was pretty much running the event. On you, the you were lucky you didn't club. play in it. 
<laughs> what was that? You were lucky you didn't play in it. You could enjoy the week. I, 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 I couldn't inflict. I couldn't inflict my golf on on the the rest of the field. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I, I've I've played with you at my word. What a fine striker you are. <laughs> I just don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as you look good. <laughs> and then, so we 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 both came away from there in about two thousand eight. At the end of two thousand eight. That's right. That's right. Um, I came back to to uh, Britain. It was quite a difficult time, you know, worldwide, wasn't it? Because yeah. the, the world had entered a big recession at the time. Um, it wasn't easy finding employment after that. Uh, but I, I was quite fortunate. Again, you know, um, running into a former contact uh, in the name of Terry Sims. Terry, you you will know well, who now runs the uh, complex at Silvermere mm. uh, along with Dr. Cleland and. Terry was great at the time. He was looking for someone to help at uh, the club he was at at the time, Kingswood, down near um, Epsom. And uh, I jumped at the opportunity and spent about 18 months there teaching and working more as a, a, a sort of um, first assistant, as it were, uh, with, with quite a large team. Terry was very successful at the time in building a, a strong left-handed golf business where he was exporting left-handed equipment all around the world. And that was a fascinating part of the business to see. And uh, very successfully, it, it came, but uh, it became. But after 18 months, I got a call from, um, again, some old friends, some dear friends who I'd known since I was about 13, 14 years old, down at Knightsbridge Golf School. And um, they had an opportunity or rang me. Um, they, they, they were looking for someone to take over from one of their coaching professionals who had emigrated to Australia. And I jumped at the opportunity to, to have a look at that position. And that's where I am today. Um, down in um, in Lounge Square in London. So I now know that you know. Obviously, I know I, I know where you're working. I know which which part of our industry that you're working in. Yeah. And I know you that you you pretty much covered a huge spectrum of what's available to the PGA professional uh, within yeah. the game. Um, you know, you don't have to be pigeonholed into one thing. You don't have to do it for. For 50 years, some people choose to do that and, and they love doing it, which is fantastic. And I know you love coaching and I find it really interesting. I want you to talk about the, I know you already had an affiliation or an attachment to Knightsbridge Golf School from when you were a junior. And then if you can, if you can try and link it into, to, you know, the mentors that you had growing up, the, the sure. huge influences that you had on your career. Um, and if you, if you can, if you can remember a couple of stories as you go along, just, uh, course, just tell the yeah. listeners, just tell the listeners how it how it came about and kind of how yeah. that's influenced how you teach today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, you know, my father was a huge influence on on uh, myself career wise, um, and uh, you know, I have a lot to thank him for. But you, you know, listeners must remember that I was I was brought up with you know Ryder Cup players staying at home. Um, so I was never in awe, you know, the top line player, as it were, at the time, or top line coaches. That was the environment that I was born into. Um, so I was spending time with them, um, you know, when they weren't coaching, when they were coaching. So uh, probably unbeknown to me at the time, but I guess, you know, the brain's like a sponge, isn't it, if you want it to be? And, it, you know, uh, you're absorbing an awful lot of information. Um, which became relevant to you as you got older. But my father was just curtailing his um, playing career in the early 70s, and he wasn't too happy with the way he was playing at the time. 
and went down to seek some help from a gentleman called Leslie King. And it was um, the Leslie King Golf Clinic, as it was called then, um, which is now the Knightsbridge Golf uh, School. And um, Leslie uh, was a huge influence on uh, my father. He you know, helped him reshape his swing to where he wanted it to be. So at least he could be pretty competitive again when he chose to play. Yeah. And uh, also enjoyed the way that, you know, also enjoyed his teaching methodology as well. Mm -hmm. um, but again, he had had uh, a lot of influence growing up. He was assistant professional, first of all, to a gentleman called Willie Wallace at uh, um, uh, Hallamshire and uh, Charlie Hughes, um, who was a, a very well-known um, professional within the industry who went on to become a, a future PGA captain. And then John Jacobs. And John, of course, um, as everybody knows, really, who'll be listening to this, uh, is a name that is uh, known throughout the coaching world and has, and has spread uh, great influence uh, around the globe with his coaching methodologies. And um, I think, you know, everything combined uh, should give you a thorough grounding in in. You, you know, from a playing point of view, what works best for you, but also how to coach and um, all the different methodologies that you can, you can employ really with people. So if you, you grew up with these great players and these um, Ryder Cup, Ryder Cup players, tournament winners, major winners. Yeah. And, and what, what advice would you give to a, a young coach that isn't in the same position? Is, is there a way that you would feel, not acceptable what what kind of way would you advise someone to come up and approach uh, either a really really good player or a really really top end coach to try and you know to get some information on how they can improve their coaching yeah that's a, that's a great question i think first and foremost um, you have respect for uh, the top line player and and the top line coach i mean with with all the top players that I've come into contact with over the years. Um, they all have very strong personalities. Um, they have a clear picture of what they're trying to do, what makes their golf swing work under pressure. They generally, I would say, not all, but generally have a good knowledge of their own golf swing and how to fix it when they're in competitive play as well. So they're able to get the ball in the hole in as fewer strokes as they can um, uh, and then uh, probably... Uh, you know, work on any technical deficiencies away from the tournament environment. Um, and and the, the coaches as well, they all have absolute knowledge of subject, as you know, um, and are very strong personalities in their own right, which they have to be because they're dealing with strong individuals uh, throughout their career. And, um, you know, they, they, there can't be any, you, you know, ifs and buts. When you're, yeah. when you're dealing with any level of golfer, whether it's a beginner or a top line player, um, you know, I feel that you have to have absolute knowledge of what you're saying. And there must be uh, a reason why you're saying something um, to that person. And you must be able to answer any question mm. uh, that that person can throw at you. So, um, you know, basically listen as much as you can to being around good players, listen to top coaches. We can you know, I feel that, you know, I'm nowhere near the coach I would like to be and try and improve on a daily basis. So when I get five minutes spare and if I'm not teaching at Knightsbridge, but my other colleagues are, you know, I'll go in, sit on a, a lesson, sit in on a lesson, you know, if it's all right with the student at the time and, and learn from them and, and, and observe and listen and, and watch. And there's always something I think you can learn every day. Yeah. I mean, our certainty has to be greater there than their uncertainty. 
Absolutely. And I think what you're trying to do, isn't it, is, is you've got to try and, you know, give as much knowledge as you can to that individual. So in the end, they almost have more knowledge than they than you do about their own goal swing. So when they're not with you, mm. they know how to self-correct. Yes. And, uh, and I, I think that's something I don't know what you feel about that now, whether or not, you know, top line players are sometimes in danger of can be in danger of being overcoached, maybe too reliant on on coaches. Um, or perhaps it's working the other way. I think at times you could, you, we obviously don't know what is going on away from the golf course or even sometimes on the golf course with the top, with the top players. I think, right. some, I think some players do want to be a bit more, they want to have their team around them consistently. Um, they That's they right. feel secure and safe in that, that they can ask anyone at any time and they, uh, they're always there kind of on hand. Um, but I also think there's some that are very autonomous. I think there's, there's some that are quite happy just being on by themselves or just with their caddy or or whoever it be from their team. I think, again, I think getting to know the player first and foremost, their wants and needs, and then you, you kind of arrange it around, uh, uh, around what you feel is better for them. Um, I think you've some, yeah, I think you've got to treat, you know, every individual as a person first, haven't you? I know it's an old cliche, but you've got to get into the mind of that person and uh, be very on board with, with what they want. And then you've got to tailor your coaching methods to, to that person, to suit that person and that person's personality, because every single person is different in, in how they're interpreting something and how they'll feel something. Um, and you know, they, every, everybody sees things in a different way, but you've got to get a way that works for them. Yeah, haven't I mean, you? John, I always remember one of the things John used to, that's why he used to love the groups. He used to love the group environment because he, he, yes, I, he did. I can remember him saying to me that, uh, not that he got bored because he just loved being around people. He just loved the game of golf so much, but he, he really enjoyed doing the, the golf schools because that the variety of different people that he used to meet. And that was always changing on a consistent basis. So it never became stagnated. I, I don't think that was the word that he would that he used, but that was yeah. the way that I interpreted well, what he said. That's right. And you 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 got to know John very well. And and as you probably know, which many of the, the listeners might not know, John didn't set out on his uh, uh, golfing career to be a teacher. He wants to be the best player in the world that he could be. And um he did a very good job of that. I mean, he was a Ryder Cup player. He won tournaments. He was a renowned player in Britain and in Europe at the time. And um, he had to retire, I think, didn't he, at the age of 38, or he made that decision to stop playing really at the age of 38, which was quite young back then, simply because he was in so much demand for his coaching skills. And um, it wasn't something that he particularly wanted to do uh, or foresee, foresaw himself doing long term. It was just that he had a, a knack I think for um, getting things across to people in such a way that was simple and they could understand and had success, you know, quickly with. And um, uh, you know, he he then went on from there to become one of the the great coaching uh, uh, great coaches of all time. But um, it's interesting. He even someone like him sort of slipped into it, probably didn't he? Rather than right, I'm going to be the best coach I can be from the age of 20. It wasn't like yeah, that. He didn't at write all. out a five-year plan that basically said, I want to be here in five years. Am I right in saying it was at Sandy Lodge when he went to the committee 
and said that he's going to increase his price of his lessons because he wanted to play more. But but when That's he right. increased them, and it was he increased it by like three or four times, didn't he? He did. He did. It was unprecedented, really, back at the time. This would be in the late fifties, early sixties, where, as you say, he went to the committee and said, "Look." You know, I'm I'm not able to play. I'm teaching too much. I don't want to do that. I'd like to keep my playing standards high. I'm just finding no time to practice at all. So obviously my form is deteriorating. You know, and if I'm competing, I want to compete at the best level I can. Otherwise, there's no point. And you and I know that well. You know, if you can't compete and prepare, then there's no point being there really. But um, so the committee said, well, all right, John, if you want to do that, you can. And as you quite rightly say, um, I, th I think his lesson book, uh, yeah. Trebled. Uh, they they thought well, he must be good because he charges a lot of money. <laughs> I think I think at that uh, stage in his life he thought, well, that's it then, really. You know, I'll play the odd tournament, but um, uh, coaching's probably going to be a, a big part of my life from from that moment. And it was, yeah. of course, it, going back to the wants and needs of great players um, or of the player. Um, you told me a wonderful story about uh, a certain multiple uh, Open champion who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, just tell us the story yeah, about... Peter Thompson, that's right. Well, that's right. Um, John was um, uh, a good friend of Peter Thompson's, who, uh, as you say, sadly passed away um, uh, uh, at the back end of last month. And what a wonderful career he had, of course, five times Open champion, three times in a row from 56 to 58. And... Um, uh, John knew him from quite a young age, I think, when he was around about 17, 18 years old. I think they competed against one another in the Egyptian match play, of all things, <laughs> when John was working out in Egypt. But he recognized, you know, when Peter was that young, that this was an outstanding prospect and was very impressed by his method and how he played the game of golf and his attitude, etc. Highly intelligent man, mm -hmm. as you know. And um, so they became good friends. And, and, you know, one year when Peter was at his best, uh, again, this would be late late 50s, early 60s. Uh, he would try and come over for about three or four weeks before the Open to prepare with the climate and the, the different playing conditions, of course, from Australia. And he rang Peter and uh, rang John at Sandy Lodge one day and said, look, can I come up and see you just uh, on a Saturday morning? I just want you to check my setup, make sure that I'm okay before I go and play in the tournaments. And John said, of course. So he crossed off the whole of his lesson diary that morning. The day arrived, Peter drove up from London on his own, and John said, come on then, we'll go out onto the range. And for those of you know who's uh, Sandy Lodge, the practice ground is right in front of the clubhouse, so there wasn't very far to walk. And uh, Peter stood up with a driver, and John said, come on then, let's see you hit a shot. And Thompson said, well, I just want you to check my setup, John. And John said, well, that's fine. And uh, Peter said, thank you very much, that's it, let's go in for a cup of tea. And he never actually hit a shot. <laughs> Which I, 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 I would say is um, someone showing great confidence in their method yeah. at the time. <laughs> yeah, he didn't, uh, didn't lack any self-belief. Yeah, but I don't know. Another, another story that comes quickly to mind, uh, Duncan, and, and again, you may have heard this from him. Um, I did ask him once, you know, who, who taught you to teach, John? He said, well, anybody who taught me to teach back in the you know, the late 40s, um, you just had to learn by playing with good players and observe and try and work it out for yourself a bit, why the ball went this way and why the ball went that way and what the club face was doing, um, you know, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But he was telling me a story when he was at Hallamshire 
um, there's no practice ground at Hallamshire, and the, the ha he had to just you know teach when he could between groups playing the first hole. And down the first hole at Hallamshire, it's a long par four. There's a stone wall on the right hand side from the tee all the way down to the to the green. And he said he had this very eminent old crusty member at the time who said, Jacobs, I want you to come and teach me in half an hour. And John had the opportunity to do that. And in those days, they were using hickory shafts still, actually. It was only just after the war where clubs were, you know, difficult to find of quality and golf balls as well. So John met him out near the first tee and it was a strong left to right wind blowing. Just the, the wind that the right hander <laughs> loves with the out of bounds wall on the right hand side. So John said, this chap was the worst slicer you've ever seen. And he hit about 10 shots straight over the wall. And uh, John was struggling a little bit and the chap was getting more anxious and a little bit moody saying, come on, you're meant to know something about it. What am I doing? And John had a brainwave at the time. He very subtly moved this chap closer and closer to the wall to the point where he then said, come on then, let's now see you hit one. So he came inside it off the ball, over the top, the biggest out to win swing path you've ever seen and um, smashed his hickory club in two. And John turned around and said, you won't slice ever again, <laughs> will you, when you do that? <laughs> Which the gentleman wasn't too pleased. Um, John didn't charge him for the lesson, of course, and um, had to make him a brand new club from scratch as they were handmade in those days. Well, that was a wonderful story. <laughs> Again, you know, just just it was a, you know, it might be a little bit, uh, you know, apocryphal as some of these stories are, but there'll be a grain of truth in that, of course. And, um, you know, he had to get the, the point across that this chap was so, you know, outside the line with his swing path that all he could do with the club face yeah. wide open was hit it straight over that wall. But um, that was a rather yeah, severe, severe lesson. Constraints-based learning now. <laughs> yeah, if you yes. avoid the wall. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Avoid the wall at all costs. That's <laughs> it's a good idea. So what? Yeah. Especially with exactly. graphite. So what happens, uh, what happens at lessons with you down at uh, Knightsbridge Golf School? How does how does one book in, and then what what happens? Yeah, um, well, we're, we're um, really dependent on, we can't advertise, actually. This, the school is indoors. Um, we can't advertise outside on the door because it's a residential de development. So we're dependent on, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, websites, and the, the previous um, uh, golf instructional books, actually, that have been written first by Mr. King back in the 60s and then by the present owners, Steve Gould and David Wilkinson, who have written uh, three golf instruction books in the last sort of 15, 20 years. Um, and also with um, um, uh, uh, the, the location of the school is, is um, as the name suggests, near Knightsbridge Tube. So the location is good. Um, and people can ring uh, uh, or contact us in any way they would like to and, uh, and, and simply book in with one of the coaches. But we do, we do teach... Um, you know, the same methodology. So there's continuity of coaching from all the four coaches. So it doesn't really matter who that yeah. person books in with. Um, they will they will get the, the, the same. Obviously, the coaches' personalities are different. They'll put things across in a slightly different way. But um, the, the same principles are, are coached, if you like, in terms of the, um, uh, uh, what, what the, the instruction that the person is receiving. So... What, uh, what technology have you got there then? Um, on the technology side, um, 
we use iPad technology primarily now, um, which I'm sure most coaches do. Uh, we've done away with the video camera uh, situation, yeah. uh, which were fine at the time, you know, and fairly state of the art, as you know, but iPad technology now is much quicker uh, in terms of uh, immediate playback, we feel, and, you know, some of the apps you can get are very good, particularly the slow motion uh, shots that you can now get for filming indoors is much mm -hmm. improved on what it used to be. Um, and also then to send the appropriate uh, content of the lesson across to the student by email is, is proving, you know, highly uh, successful and helping people learn, I think, a lot quicker when they've got something visually to hand as well in their own spare time that they can glance at and, and go back over rather than having to remember everything like we did in the 70s, of course, um, when there were no video cameras then at all. And you just had to remember everything that you were told in no uncertain terms. So you certainly listened back then. Um, but I think the technology can help now people to, uh, to remember the, the key content of the lesson um, at the time. But we also use um, four simulators. Um, there are three converted squash courts, basically, uh, split into two sections, two hitting stations in each. And in two of the rooms, there are four simulators. And then uh, the, the guys who own the school, they've kept um, the original original uh, teaching room that Mr. King used to teach in pretty mm -hmm. well as it was really. So that's where the technical work is done. And sometimes it's better, of course, for the students, as you know, when they're not seeing what the ball does. Um, you know, that can that can put people off um, uh, as much as, as seeing the ball, perhaps. So um, that's how it operates. And, uh, you know, the, the David Wilkinson and Steve Gould, I have a great admiration for, and David Lamplew, my other colleague as well, um, in, in, in terms of uh, their knowledge that they've, they've had through many, many years of coaching. They, they've been there since 1970 and 76. So, of course, vastly experienced, um, you know, in teaching top-line champion golfers over the years to uh, yeah. your outright beginner, so what really. Have, what were the, what, is there a kind of a process that you, you employ uh, during the session? So you're looking primarily uh, at swing shape. Um, so... Um, yes, that's right. That, that, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get the normal feedback from the student if we haven't met them before on, you know, their history of their golf at, at, at the time, um, you know, the standard they're playing to, the, the, the issues that they come across on a daily basis when they're playing. Um, if they've received instruction before or, or if not, that doesn't really matter too much. But um, what we will do, we'll then just film the golfer uh, hitting shots without any instruction at the time. Um, we'll be filming using the iPads generally from a face-on situation and also from a behind-the-line-of-flight situation, so you get both angles. And then we will review with that student the key area of diagnosis that we feel is causing the major issue for them. So rather than just treat the symptom, we're trying to um, create a, a form of coaching which really is based upon an end-to-trial-and-error golf and quick fixing. We don't really like that type of coaching too much if we can avoid it because it's generally not satisfying long term for the student and not satisfying particularly for the coach either but as you know sometimes you have to give that type of lesson depending on the the student circumstances yeah. at the time so the do you have any training aids or anything like that in at, at, at the school uh we have a few yes we have uh, impact bags which we we use on a daily basis we have um uh, door frames, would you believe we have door frames with no, yeah. with no doors on, which we find can be useful, um, particularly when talking to people about the importance we feel on what we call hand line. That's the, the arc mm -hmm. that the hands swing on. Um, 
relative to the arc that the club head swings on. So uh, we use little cut down, if you can imagine, basically an old club that we cut down just to the bottom of where the grip would come, really. So they're holding a handle of a, a golf club and put them within a door frame and just work on the hand line keeping that hand arc, if you'd like, between the door frame can be very useful. So um, I, I didn't think that taking doors off uh, um, would particularly uh, prove to be a useful training aid, but yeah. that's done, actually. Um, but we, we don't use a great deal of, of, of coaching aids, um, but we do use them where appropriate. If, if we feel they're of benefit, I think, as you know, we look at coaching aids fairly mm. carefully. The first we look at is can they do firstly yes. any harm yes. to the golfer um, before looking to use them if 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 we feel they can't do any harm and use correctly then we might uh, use them uh, you know when the appropriate time comes Very along good. so the the school's open is the school open every day uh bar sundays okay. and bank Have holidays yeah so we're open from, uh, yeah we're, we're open from monday to uh saturday uh, Mondays from two until nine, and then uh, Tuesdays through Friday from eight until nine. Um, and of course, the benefit of being indoors is that you can you can keep the um, you know the school open for quite long hours. So it gives people the opportunity to come down and hit balls and and train. We have a practice membership as well, um, as well as has have lessons at you know suitable times to them to fit around their lifestyle. So that's that's uh, quite the, important. So do you, do, you, do you gift or if you could um, tell the listeners, are there any, what are the most important or influential books that, uh, that you have either read or that you actually give to others? Um, I know the latest one out from the, the school is The Finishing School. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, Mr. King's first book that he wrote was uh, The Master Key to Success of Golf. That was a, a hard copy printed back in 62, which was a basic overview of the system that he used or yep. the, model of, the model of swing, if he used, if you like. And then he wrote a manual, um, which wasn't published, really. It, it went well in America in the in the mid 70s, which has a picture of Julie Inkster on the front, who was his star sort of student, I guess, uh, during the, the, the late 70s. And um, that was published in, in Britain um, and in the States and went quite well in the States. And that was sort of in loose leaf form, in a manual sort of way, if you like. Yeah. And then, what, um, was that, what was that called, Philip? That was called the... Um, um, uh, now, if I can remember, it was the free arm swing. I think the Leslie King uh, golf method, the free arm swing, it was called at the time. And then have, since have then... You, have you seen that available anywhere since? I think it might be available. I think it's actually on the internet. Someone's put it on the internet because it'll, it'll be out of copyright and yeah. people have taken extracts from that and put it on the internet, we've noticed. Yeah. And then um, since then, uh, Leslie passed away in 1995. And then since then, the guys have written um, three uh, books, four books, actually, The Swing Factory, um, and then followed by The Golf Delusion, Golf's Golden Rule, which is probably their most technical book in terms of detail, and finally Finishing School, which is based on an, an area of the swing that we don't really feel. I don't know what you think, Duncan, but we feel that a lot of instruction has been done to death, really, on the on the backswing, particularly, and probably the downswing and into impact, but not really much from you know through the impact zone and beyond impact, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something we see on a daily basis that often breaks down, even with good players. They don't quite get post-impact right to match up to the arc of uh, pre-impact. And we wanted just to 
try and put that across a little bit more clearly and hopefully that will will uh, help people a little bit yeah i mean i've definitely used you know extracts from the book myself and i can remember actually when i was an assistant at moore park to lawrence um at one point lawrence was putting himself in different finishing positions and he was trying to work out what you would have to do in a backswing or more importantly in the downswing to get to that finishing position that's and right how would that affect the flight of the ball absolutely right i think you know we 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 feel that probably the two biggest faults i don't know what you think and we can only comment on obviously what we see on a daily basis but yeah. we would have to say that the two biggest faults that we see if you were really to break it down what are the main faults that we see people do um, on a daily basis in terms of the recreational golf or if I can just break it down to the recreational golfer rather than the, the sort of um, top line amateur or, or tour professional would be that they tend to roll the wrists off the ball either in an anti-clockwise wrist roll or a clockwise wrist roll mm-hmm. um, which distorts the, the plane of the swing and the club face angle often very early on in the swing and then it's a constant battle then isn't it to to compensate for that motion, to get it back to impact in the right way. And as a result of that, often then they can't create correct impact. And of course, the post-impact finishes is is not right either. So, um, you know, as as Ben Hogan famously once said, I think, didn't he, that, you know, if you get it wrong off the ball in the takeaway, then faults in the swing tend to multiply. And and we would probably agree with that. Excellent. So apart from the... Apart from Mr. King's books and 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 the guys there uh, currently, any other books that um, have kind of shaped shaped your career, as it were? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I'm an avid reader anyway. So yeah. although you know, obviously, I stick to the principles that we believe in at the school. I'm I'm very open to um, reading and learning from other coaches as well. And there's been some great work done by coaches around the world. I mean, you're. Uh, great friend Jim Hardy. I enjoy reading. You know the one plane swing, the two plane swing. The differences between the two, I think, is fascinating. Um, and I like reading Jim's work a lot. Uh, John's uh, um, uh, work, David Ledbetter's work, whoever it may be. I enjoy looking at their um, instruction in terms of how they write and, and put things across on paper. Uh, as you know, it's not easy to. Um, to get words to become a feel for someone. Mm. Um, but again, it's adding to your knowledge on a daily basis. And um, I, I would never like to think that we know it all. You know, it's, it's, uh, we're learning all the time, or we should be learning all the time, I think, from, from the top coaches throughout the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Philip, have you got any golfing predictions for the year? Is there anything that you've noticed that you, that you think is heading in a fabulous direction and some things that, maybe we should be a little bit wary of anything anything come to mind for you well on the on the on the tour side i think we're going to to win the Ryder cup which might come as a surprise to some people i think you've got two tremendously powerful team shaping up i like the look of our mix of experienced players and young players coming through who play well nowadays wherever they play around the world people like you know tommy fleetwood terrell hatton uh uh Olison from Denmark look 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 terrific, mm. uh, and then you've got your older established players like your Henrik Stenson's, Garcia's, Rose, etc., who are who are playing extremely well, and and of course a resurgent Ian Poulter, and who wouldn't have him in your side if you had the opportunity? Home uh, soil, I think, in France could count um, an, uh, for an extra point for Europe. Um, I think the crowds will be sensational there, and it should be a great uh, 
sporting occasion to add to what's been a great sporting summer, I think, in general. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Let's, let, let's, try and, let's try and grow the game. You know, we need more young people playing. We need accessibility to golf clubs. I think golf clubs themselves have got to be flexible, haven't they, to, to get people in as members um, as much as they can and encourage people to play. Um, you, you know, it's not an easy industry at the moment, and it hasn't been for some years. No. Uh, but let's try and, you know, drive as, as many, you know, girls and women through into the game as we can and keep them in the sport because we're lacking that a little bit. I'm sad to see the state of the ladies' European tour at the moment. I think that needs to move on and, and get a lot stronger if girls are going to have the incentive to become top-line players. I think what Georgia Hall did at the weekend was terrific. and can do no yeah, fantastic. A fantastic win and how well she played. I thought that was one of the great final rounds of a major male or female that have been pl- that's been played for some time. Yes. Uh, you know, when you think of the pressure that she would have been under for, uh, in, in terms of the, the home fans wanting a home victory, I thought that was marvellous and um, all credit to her. Yeah. So I think there's some great positives. Um, uh, there's some negatives as well, but let's let's focus on the on, on the positives and. And let's let's continue to try and help people as much as they can to enjoy this great game and a game that's been you know very good to me and and um, I'm extremely grateful for that and uh, I know you are too as well, Duncan. That we're very fortunate to work in this this wonderful sport. Absolutely, yeah, I couldn't agree more. But if there was one golf course you could play for the rest of your life, you only got one. What would it? Where would it be? Do you know, um, I'm a great fan of Heathland golf, having been brought up around the Surrey area. Um, so I'm going to choose one of the great Surrey, Berkshire, stroke Berkshire County Heathland courses. And I will go for um, Hankley Common. Very nice. What a, what, a, what, a, what a great place that is. Um, some wonderful holes, not too long. You know, I used a bit short now. I can virtually hear the ball land. Be happy. <laughs> I'd be really happy playing there forever. Yeah, it's um, yeah, Hankley's great. Hankley's just fantastic. Love Hankley. Yeah, he can't beat. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that haven't played Hankley. I think it's one of it's it's not really a hidden gem, but it's definitely a gem. Well, I think so. I I I just like the tranquility there, the quality of the holes. Um, it's peaceful. Um, the golf course is good enough that it tests most clubs in the bag and your shot making capabilities and um, a fabulous place to play if you get the chance. Excellent. So Hankley Common is the place you would play if you only could play one more, one, one last place. Philip, how can people get hold of you or um, come down and see you at uh, Knightsbridge Golf School? Yeah, the best thing to do, thanks for asking that question, Duncan, would be to, to ring... Um, uh, the number that's on the website, uh, 02072352468. Give us a ring. There'll always be someone there to take your call and and we would be looking forward to seeing you and welcoming you down uh, at at Knightsbridge if you get the opportunity. And the website is Knightsbridge Golf School? Yeah, it's www.knightsbridgegolfschool.com. So it's fairly straightforward and the school's just located um, about 50 yards from um, just a, a little tiny sand wedge for you. Uh, from Harvey Nichols, if anybody knows that area of town. Fantastic. And uh, is it the same on Instagram and Twitter? Is it Knightsbridge Golf School? 
It is. It's the same. Yeah. Um, Steve Gould actually does Twitter. I'm in charge of Instagram and that's Knightsbridge Golf School. So it will give you a little bit of an insight into to what we do, and um, particularly on the website. We've had that updated. You can you can see, you know, what to expect, really, if you came down to the school and how it looks, because obviously for listeners, it's a little bit difficult to visualize an indoor complex. Um, but hopefully that will give you a better idea. Brilliant. Uh, Philip, just for me personally, obviously, thank you for coming on the uh, on the podcast. I've loved having you on. Um, you know, we had a wonderful time when we were out in Madeira together. Um, you know, I was there 11 months. Obviously, our, our oldest daughter was born out there. And you and Sylvie were just absolutely fantastic in helping us not only settle in, but... Uh, when it all went a bit pear-shaped, you were you were you were really really kind with your time and uh, and making sure that we we're all right. And we've you know we've constantly stayed in touch and making sure that we're both all right when we've been back here. And it's wonderful to see you uh, succeeding and sounding so happy. Well, that's very kind, very kind words indeed. And uh, you know we go back a long way now. And uh, we went through some difficult times together. And I was very upset at the time with what uh, was happening to you in Madeira, and it wasn't easy for your family. And, um, you know, I'm pleased to see you uh, settled in nicely now and, and life moves on, of course, and yeah. it's all part of the great life experience, isn't it? And uh, I don't think, I think we can look back on things with not really too much regret, hopefully, and, um, you know, enjoy uh, what may come our way in the future, all being well. But uh, as long as we're all fit and healthy, that's the main thing. Absolutely. And yes, like you said, like we said, it's a, it's a world, it's a global game with a very small family. And uh, hopefully everyone can look after each other just the way that uh, that you did to me when we were out in Madeira. No, it's the least we could have done. And um, we, we have fond memories of, of good times together. And those are the memories we should always cherish. And I look forward to uh, meeting up with you soon. We'll, we'll have, a, have a coffee. And uh, it's been some time since I've seen you strike it like you do. <laughs> hopefully I wouldn't miss the net. <laughs> No, no. As long as it, as long as it's going forward, we're all right. Yeah, yeah. I've got to repaint and redecorate the side walls at some stage, uh, such as the, the, the uh, some of the shots we see. But it, it all adds to the fun of the game. You better do that after I've been then. <laughs> Lovely, Philip. Thanks ever so much, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. Fantastic. Take care, Duncan, and good luck with everything. Cheers, Best wishes. Cheerio. Bye.